as you know, the border is very dynamic. We need, between the ports of entry in particular, um, obviously more technology, more detection technology. Um, we need more men and women. Uh, I need more canine handlers as well. We utilize them quite a bit. And, of course, I do need more barriers. Things in the world you never want to let people see how you make them. Laws and sausages. No one likes to see the sausage made, including the guys who make it. Hey there, welcome to The Sausage Makers, a show about politics, policy, and the folks who run the country. I'm your host, Zach Goddard-Cohen, and that's right, today we're going to be talking about the wall, the border, and immigration. Now, this is a sticky subject for a lot of reasons, and I want to say right at the top that this is a show about wonky policy stuff, and that means we're going to be talking abstractly about these issues. But behind these issues, there are people. There are migrants who are fleeing dangerous conditions in their home countries, and there are unemployed and underemployed U.S. citizens struggling to make ends meet because of the economic impact of cheap immigrant labor. These are complex issues. We'll get into some of them later, not all of them. But the point is, there are people on both sides of this equation, and let's not forget that as we delve into the policy. But first, we're actually going to start with a physics lesson. So let's talk about water and gravity. Imagine a pond, and the pond is in a field, and there's some trees, and you could see some other ponds off in the distance. The pond is still. Uh, Maybe there's some light ripples, but the water is happy enough where it is. Then a storm comes through. There's strong winds and driving rain, and that causes the pond to overflow its banks. Or maybe there's a tree that gets blown over into the pond with a big splash, displacing, and I'm using that word intentionally, displacing or pushing some water, creating some big ripples that splash up against the bank of the pond. But because the pond is on flat land, the water doesn't really have anywhere to go. So once the storm passes, everything pretty much settles down the way it was. Maybe the banks of the pond are eroded a little, but it's not a major change. In this analogy, the pond is a country, the storm is a push factor, a conflict, something that displaces some of that country's population. The elevation, or in this case the flatness, is a measure of the country's stability. Our pond was on flat ground, which means that we're talking about a relatively stable country. And because of that stability, a crisis like a storm isn't going to matter all that much in the long run. But now imagine that same bunch of ponds, except they're sort of scattered throughout a hilly landscape. Some of the ponds are at the tops of the hills and some are at the bottom. Our pond is at the top. Now when that storm rolls through again and the water breaks over the bank of the pond, it'll start to flow downhill. It might just start out as a trickle, but as that water erodes a path, the flow gets stronger and stronger. The water is going to forge a path to the lowest point, working its way around rocks and trees, being carried by gravity until it finally gets to another pond. And now that pond has to figure out what to do with all this extra water. Experts talk about migration patterns in flows, like water, and that's a useful way for us to think about it too. Just like water flows downhill under the force of gravity, people flow to places where they think they'll be able to live their best lives. And I know we tend to think about immigration only in a national context, but I want to flip that for a second. Think about it locally. These flows are all made up of individuals, including people like you, your family, your friends. Think about where your friends settled after high school or where your friends retired to. Think about the last time you moved. Why did you move? Where did you end up? And why there? Unlike water, the forces that act on migration patterns aren't as clear-cut as gravity, but we have to consider these factors that make people want to uproot their lives and start again somewhere else. In your case, it might have been a new job, cheaper rent, better weather, better schools for your kids, something like that. 
But keep in mind that it's much easier to go from one state to another than it is to go from one country to another. For that, the push-pull factors would have to be more intense. In some cases, people are driven out by crime or violence, or the threat of starvation in a poor economy. And if there's a nearby country that's more stable, where they can see a better life for themselves, they might just try to make that journey. Now, when a country is doing well, it's got a good economy, it's a safer place to live, those pull factors are strong. But for a number of reasons that we'll explore later, a destination country wants to regulate those inbound flows. So it might build like a dam to keep people out altogether. Or it might install some pipes to make sure that the flows are controlled. Or it might be filtered so that only specific types of flow get through. The point of those regulations is to protect the destination pond, to make sure that the water that's coming in doesn't have a negative impact on the pond's ecosystem. Those barriers, in terms of migrant flow, are essentially our immigration policy, and together with the policies and circumstances of neighboring countries, they play a part in those push-pull factors. Where migrants try to end up is based on a calculation of risk and reward. What's standing in their way and what do they hope to achieve by taking one path over the other? And with that, it's time to start in on the southern border of the United States. The Department of Homeland Security recently asked experts from the conservative think tank the Rand Corporation to write up an outline for how the government should be thinking about border security and also how they could measure whether their tactics were working. One of the authors is an expert on systems modeling, which just means that he knows how to look at a complex problem, break it down into parts, and then show how those parts are related. In the paper, there's this diagram. You can check the show notes for it. It's got boxes and arrows, and it does just that. So let's go over that model. The first part is labeled policies, economics, law, and other factors. So that's just a combination of push and pull factors that influence people's decisions to leave their country or stay where they are. Let's talk about some of those factors. Rarely is it one thing that drives people to migrate. That's Kristen Tennyson. And I think that we have to understand the intersection between the impact of crime and violence on economic opportunity and how that's looked at by the local populations. Tennyson is the Western Hemisphere Affairs Director for the Foreign Service Institute. Last December, just weeks before a partisan dispute over border security brought parts of the federal government to a grinding halt, Tennyson was in D.C. speaking at a forum on immigration hosted by the Council of the Americas. So, for example, if you talk to Salvadorans, when they talk about the situation in their country, they're talking a lot about crime and violence as the reason that they can't have economic opportunity. They're well aware that it's cost prohibitive for companies to come to their country to invest. Um, we hear about people saying, you know, my company was shut down because they couldn't bear the burden, the cost burden of having to do security. Um, for delivery drivers, every time they go in and out of a neighborhood, they have to pay somebody to have access to that neighborhood. There is an economic drain on the economy because of the violence. And so you can't think about this as purely violence or purely economic. There is an intersection between these two issues. The intersection of crime, violence, and the economy. It's like this downward spiral. Crime keeps companies out, which brings the economy down, which creates more crime. And one of the reasons why it's so hard to break this cycle is that there's a lot of money in it. Gangs and cartels make their money off the spiral, through drugs, through human trafficking, the weapons trade, extorting locals. But amid these very visible problems, there's another problem that's less exciting to talk about than crime and violence, but really it's no less important. I think 
the lack of governance. And it's not a very sexy issue, you know. That's Eric Olson, a director for the Central America DC platform of the Seattle International Foundation. You don't get up in the morning and say, gee, I'm going to migrate because there's no governance. But corruption, you have no uh, expectation that the state, the government is going to really help you, who a majority of these folks are very vulnerable. There's no schools, there's no health care, there's no jobs, there's nothing. And on top of it, your government is stealing from you. The decision to immigrate or not is really a question of hope. If you're living in an area with a lot of crime and poverty and you have hope that the police or the government will be able to fix it, you might stick it out for a few years, you know, before uprooting your life and making a dangerous journey that could very well just get you sent right back to where you started. But if you run out of hope that things could get better, you've got less to lose. And based on those factors, you've got what the Rand Corporation paper calls potential flow. Potential flow is essentially people who are considering, maybe I might, you know, try to cross the border illegally, but I haven't decided yet. Let's take a quick look at our southern neighbor, Mexico. Over the past 20 years, the number of Mexicans who try to cross the border illegally has gone way down. In 2000, 1.6 million Mexicans were caught trying to get into the United States illegally, and in 2017, that number had dropped to just over 100,000. If you look at Mexico... That's Gil Kurlikowski, former Customs and Border Protection Commissioner under Obama. Their economy is better, their security is better, their educational opportunities for kids are better, and lo and behold, people aren't as interested in trying to make a dangerous trek illegally into the United States from Mexico. One of the ways that U.S. policy can reduce the potential flow of immigrants from a country is to partner with that country to make conditions better for the people who live there. In 2007, under the Bush administration, the U.S. began sending money to Mexico, about $400 million every year, to help them fight the cartels. With that money, the Mexican government bought weapons and surveillance systems to help law enforcement on the street, and it also strengthened the court system by creating justice programs like witness protection that made it easier for civilians to come forward as informants. And it worked. Mexico is much safer now than it used to be, and that means that fewer Mexicans are trying to come to the U.S. In fact, more immigrants from South and Central America are opting to settle in Mexico. And that's a testament to the changing push-pull factors. Mexico's pull factors got stronger, and the U.S.'s have gotten a little weaker by comparison. Um, the Mexican asylum system only got about 3,000 applications three years ago. This year, they'll have close to 30,000, 10-time increase. That's Andrew Slee. He's the president of the Migration Policy Institute. Completely overburdened. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds like our asylum system. It's huge, but this is just monumental. They say they're going to try and beef this up. This is something we should obviously want to help with. This is something we can work with, with them and UNHCR. It's to our advantage that more people want to apply for asylum in Mexico. And there's some evidence that a lot of these people actually stay in Mexico as well. Secondly, they've talked about creating an employment-based visa for Central Americans that would take people from Central America who want to work and put them in areas where there are labor shortages in Mexico. This is a big undertaking. I mean, it is, it is one thing to say that they want to do this. It's another thing to do this and also do it in a way that doesn't compete with Mexican workers or perhaps do it with a labor program that includes Mexicans as well as Central Americans in creating a visa. They haven't done this before, but this is an area where we certainly could partner. It is something we have some expertise in doing as well, and it's something that would obviously create a magnet for people to stay in Mexico. That's part of the potential flow as well. It's not just push factors from an immigrant's country of origin, it's pull factors from other nearby countries. But let's get back to the Rand Corporation model. Down the line, potential flow, people who might want to try crossing the border illegally, turns into attempted flow, people who actually give it a shot. That decision is influenced by what the model calls perceptions of border security effectiveness. 
basically how hard it is to cross the border illegally, or really how hard it seems. As part of their risk-reward calculation, the people who make up the potential flow have to consider whether or not they'll be successful. People who decide not to try based on how secure they think the border is are diverted into a category called deterred flow. A lot of the Trump administration's border strategy has been about deterrence, or trying to convince potential immigrants that it's just not worth the risk. Remember over the spring and summer last year when we started getting reports of families being separated at the border? That was part of the deterrence strategy. Here's Jeff Sessions, who was attorney general at the time. He's since been ousted from the administration. Importantly, some years ago, it was decided to arrest some people who have crossed the border illegally. But anyone that brought a, a child with them would be given effective immunity from prosecution and would not be prosecuted. Word got out about this loophole, and the results were predictable. The number of aliens illegally crossing with children went from 14,000 to 75,000 in just four years. A five-fold increase. You hear how he said word got out about this loophole? He's talking about perceptions of border security. By word of mouth, by friends and relatives who have successfully made it across the border, and by the internet, word got out that crossing the border with a child made success more likely. We cannot and will not encourage people to bring their children or other children uh, to the country unlawfully by giving them immunity in the process. Why wouldn't you bring children with you if you know you would be released and not prosecuted? When you're starting a border security policy based on deterrence, you also need the word to get out. On that front, the media did the Trump administration a favor last summer when there was wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the family separation policy. Here's White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, who's also since been ousted from the administration, talking to CNN's Wolf Blitzer. Our Department of Homeland Security personnel going to separate the children from their moms and dads. We, we have tremendous experience in dealing with unaccompanied minors. Uh, we turn them over to HHS, uh, and they do a very, very good job of either putting them in kind of foster care or linking them up with parents or family members in the United States. Yes, I am considering, in order to deter uh, more movement along this terribly dangerous network, I am considering uh, exactly that. They will be well cared for as we deal with their parents. But you understand how that looks to the average person uh, who is, you is know, more important to me, Wolf to try to keep people off of this awful network. So Kelly's talking about converting some of that attempted flow into diverted flow, right? Let's talk about that awful network that he's trying to keep them off real quick. A significant portion of illegal border crossings are facilitated by what's called coyotes. These are people who are part of transnational criminal organizations, cartels, who help migrants cross the border, of course, for a price. Here's Carla Provost, the current Border Patrol Commissioner, answering a question from Republican Senator John Cornyn from Texas at a Senate Judiciary hearing in December. But the point I want to make is that the same transnational criminal organizations that traffic in drugs, traffic in women and children for sex slavery, uh, are the same ones that, that move the migrants across the border from uh, Central America, correct? They certainly have involvement in the movement of the migrants, yes. And it's all... It's all about the money, right? It's, it part of the, it's their business model. Uh, it, it is, and, and as I stated in my opening statement, unfortunately, they do not treat uh, the, the migrants, the people, any different than they do uh, the, right. the drugs or, or the money. This is where border security gets sticky. You've got people trying to come across the border, migrants, but you've also got drugs, money, and weapons. 
All those things are regulated by different federal agencies, but they're all part of a system of different interrelated policy objectives. Border security sits at the intersection of our immigration policy, our drug policy, and our law and order policies. We've talked about the push-pull factors for immigrants, but drugs have their own push-pull factors. Supply and demand, prices, the cost of operating a drug ring, and of course, how easy or hard it is to cross the border with contraband. Border security isn't just about what's coming into the United States, it's also about what's leaving the country, and that includes revenues from the drug trade which keep the cartels running. But one of our biggest illegal exports, in fact, is guns. According to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, since 1996, about 62,000 firearms have been smuggled out of the United States, about half of which have been assault rifles. The access the cartels have to that kind of firepower is what makes Central and South American countries so unstable, adding to the push factors that drive potential immigration flow. Here's Cornyn and Provost again. But as I understand it, it's, the priority has been on traffic coming north, because um, we're talking about the drugs again, and the other contraband and, the, and uh, illegal immigration. And so there hasn't been deployed the sort of resources in terms of manpower or technology for uh, traffic heading south. My, co- my colleagues, specifically at the ports of entry, my colleagues, as you, as you both know, have a, a very difficult mission in that they have a law enforcement mission, but they also have a mission to facilitate uh, lawful travel and trade. And um, uh, they focus their resources, of course, on, on inbound. Uh, however, they do deploy uh, as much as they can to outbound operations as well. But they have to have priorities given limited resources. Uh, yes, Senator. And that brings us to the final stage of the RAND model, coordinated border security operations. Going back to our pond analogy, these are the dams, the obstacles, and policies that actually attempt to prevent people from entering the country illegally. And there's three pillars to that strategy. There are numerous things that we need. As you know, the border is very dynamic, and there is no one thing that it just seems to uh, be that that. Uh, main issue that would stop it. We need, between the ports of entry in particular, um, obviously more technology, more detection technology. Um, We need more men and women. Uh, I need more canine handlers as well. We utilize them quite a bit. And of course, I do need more barrier because that does impede and deny and it does prevent uh, the entries. At the ports of entry, uh, there was discussion earlier and my colleagues over there are expanding their non-intrusive technology, which we also utilize at our checkpoints, and that certainly assists us as well. But it is a no-one-size-fits-all. It's a mixture of all of those things. One of the reasons why it's better to have a mixture is that border operations are, as Provost said, dynamic. The Rand Corporation paper describes border security as being less about creating an impenetrable barrier and more about outwitting the cartels. More physical barriers mean that Border Patrol agents can be more concentrated in places where there aren't physical barriers. But as agents change tactics, the cartel's strategies evolve. The caravans of migrants that are showing up at San Isidro Bridge in, in Tijuana, and which are showing up every day in what I would call a mini-caravan, um, roughly 400,000 people detained at the southwestern border in fiscal year 2017, tens of thousands of unaccompanied children and, and family units. Do the cartels use them as a strategic diversion so that they can then tie up Border Patrol and other law enforcement authorities and then use that gap to exploit 
the importation of illegal drugs in the United States? Yes, Senator, that is a tactic uh, that they have used um, over the years, and certainly with the influx that we are having um, in regard to this humanitarian issue, they cert most certainly use that uh, as a uh, diversion for us, as my men and women are spending uh, a large majority of their time dealing with the humanitarian effort. It takes them away from their border security mission. And the cartels and the TCOs know that and they use it to their advantage. So it's a changing game of wits, the U.S. Border Patrol strategy against the cartels' strategies. And the cartels aren't just playing duck and cover to get across the border. They're actively working to create situations that make border crossing easier. And as Provost told Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, different places along the border pose different challenges and require different solutions. What is the impact of a wall or physical barrier and, 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 and what, what are the benefits of it? Barriers are needed for impedance and denial. Technology provides a completely different capability for us. It provides situational awareness, and we certainly need that as well. But if we can't impede and deny, when we're talking about a 2,000-mile border and uh, a very difficult terrain to work in, then the situational awareness lets me know something's crossing, but it sure doesn't stop it from crossing. So in terms of technology, what have you all found is, is most effective, being it a virtual barrier, being infrared, fixed wing, rotary wing aircraft? What, what, what has the greatest positive impact enabling you to, to most effectively do your job? Because of the diversity of the border, we find a mixture of all of those things, and it truly depends upon the area. Uh, when we are talking about uh, areas with quick vanishing times, obviously having camera technology so that we can see. When we work in the remote areas, more detection capability is necessary for us. Having a diverse toolkit is critical for us to be able to deploy the appropriate resources in the appropriate location. It's easy to think about the border like a barrier between two countries, and to think that creating an impenetrable barrier is all you need to stop illegal border crossings. But the easy way to think about something is usually the wrong way. If you ask an engineer what the weakest point of a plumbing system is, they'll tell you it's where there's the most pressure, and that the best way to reduce strain on the system is to reduce that pressure. It's the same with immigration. There's always going to be people who want to circumvent the borders, whether they be refugees or cartels. And as our tactics on the border change, so will their tactics for getting around it. The best way to reduce that pressure is to focus on potential flow. Hit the cartels where it hurts, their arsenals and their bank accounts. Stop the flow of weapons out of the U.S. and the cartels won't be able to terrorize people to the point where uprooting their lives and making a dangerous illegal border crossing is a matter of survival. Address drug addiction in the U.S. and smuggling drugs into the country becomes more expensive for the cartels than it is profitable. Help stabilize Central and South American countries, and you'll create economic opportunities that will keep young men out of gangs. These are long-term problems, and unless we focus on long-term solutions, unless we focus on the root causes, unless we focus on reducing the pressure, the potential flow, the issue of border security will remain a quagmire of never-ending, short-sighted, quick fixes. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. Check the show notes for links to that Rand Corporation study 
that full Senate hearing where we heard from Carla Provost and Senators Cornyn and Cruz, as well as that Immigration Policy Forum in D.C. And thanks to you, listener, for taking the time out to listen. If you like the show, subscribe to us on your podcast app. Leave us a review. If you got value from this episode, if you learned anything at all from this episode, if you care about outcomes and you want your friends to care too, tell them about it. It's the best way you can help us grow this show's audience, which will help me book actual guests for this show to keep you enlightened. Like our page on Facebook at facebook.com slash the sausage makers podcast. Follow us on Twitter at sausage underscore makers. If you have any questions or feedback, shoot us an email at sausage.makers at gmail.com. I'm Zach Goddard Cohen. Thanks again for listening. And remember, just because politics drives you crazy doesn't mean government has to. Mm-hmm.